Next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic, the future. This is Cracking the Code with Sadir Ispahani. In this episode, John Komeji, the president and general manager of Hawaiian Telecom, shares how being a C student taught him important lessons for success. I learned one, how to get out of trouble. You know, when you're in trouble, you gotta figure out a way and think about alternatives, how you get out of trouble. The second thing which I really learned and really helped me was learning how to bounce back from failure, which I think till today still stays with me in terms of learning how to pick yourself up and keep on moving forward. A life-changing lesson came in kindergarten when a classmate hit John on the head with a hammer. With a real hammer. And the reason why that shaped my life is that my parents drilled into my head that I was much too passive. And because I was passive, this kid picked on me. And because of that, you know, I eventually became a trial lawyer. But because of that, <laughs> I don't let anybody push me around. And the lesson Komeji hammers into the heads of younger leaders Respect and trust run on a two-way street. You can't expect to gain somebody's respect if you don't respect them. You can't believe that you can get someone's trust on you unless you trust them. Now your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. John, you've been a great friend. It's been a privilege to know you over the years. I feel every time, even though we don't meet very often on the islands here, we meet, I, I learned something new from you just by uh, hearing you talk. You know, welcome to Cracking the Code with Sudhir Ispahani. Uh, we have our dear friend, John Komeji. John is the president and general manager at Hawaiian Telecom, the subsidiary of Cincinnati Bell. John is a community leader here in Hawaii. He is uh, highly respected. He is uh, an incredible wealth of knowledge uh, for leadership and, uh, and leadership lessons. So I hope for our audience this will be uh, a, a great podcast to listen to. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's an honor. And likewise, you know, we've known each other, but we have this deep friendship that I truly appreciate and treasure. So thank you for being my friend. Thank you, vice versa. So as you know, this uh, podcast is about sharing our life journey, our life lessons and leadership lessons to those uh, who are going to be the next generation of leaders. John, I typically start with most of my guests with uh, childhood. As you know, childhood frames a lot of our thinking and the way we act and and, uh, and learn from, from the ones we look up to. So walk us for our audience a little bit about where you grew up, what childhood was like, mom and dad, siblings. Yep. Born and raised in Honolulu. I have two brothers. Uh, one two years younger than myself, one nine years younger than myself. My dad owned a um, small family-created uh, furniture store. His dad, my grandfather, started a furniture store, and my dad continued in his footsteps in managing the furniture store. My mom was an uh, elementary school teacher and taught fourth grade uh, for many years. Subsequently, she then taught students how to be teachers and work with the university. I had a, um, what I consider a fairly normal childhood. Nothing stands out. I, I started at uh, the university laboratory school when I was four years old and continued at that school until I graduated from high school. That school is very, very small. So when we graduated from high school, 
I graduated in a class of 49 students. I'm sure the classes well, were, I don't remember, but I'm sure the classes in preschool and elementary school were smaller than that because he had students along the way. So it was quite a stable environment, both in terms of family life and in terms of school. The one, and you don't even know this, but the one thing, uh, one event I can tell you that probably shaped part of my life was that when I was in kindergarten, another student hit me on the head with a hammer, with a real hammer. And the reason why that shaped my life is that my parents sort of drilled into my head that I was much too passive. And because I was passive, this other kid picked on me. And because of that, you know, you, you know, I eventually became a trial lawyer. But because of that, I don't let anybody uh, push me around. You know, my, my favorite movie of all time is uh, Rocky. And the reason why I like that is that, you know, it's not whether you win or lose. It's whether or not the other guy wants to fight you again. And Apollo Creed in first Rocky said, I'm never going to fight you again. And that's kind of, I think, either defined or was sort of brought about by that one incident. But other than that, I was a pretty normal kid. Played, played a lot. Went to Japanese language school after school. Did well up until the sixth grade and then sort of took a left turn. I had a very happy and comfortable uh, we weren't rich or anything. What was it like with mom and dad? I mean, what were the observations? You know, a lot of us as kids observe our parents and we learn some things, some not to do, some to do. What were some of those things that you picked up on? Well, my dad worked. Well, both of my parents worked really hard, yeah. mom and my dad. Uh, but my dad would start at 7 in the morning and his store would be open till 9 at night. So, you know, as a family-owned business, you do everything from sweeping the floor to emptying the rubbish to selling furniture and everything. So he worked really hard. Same with my mom. She worked really hard. She had three kids. So she had, you know, uh, she, she in another day and time, she would have probably been a professional, maybe a lawyer even or something. Right. But the opportunities for them at that stage of their life, she ended up being a teacher. But she was able to balance all of that keeping track of the kids. We were not naughty, but I still remember that my younger brother and I, one summer or one year, for six consecutive months, we went to the emergency room, one of us. (laughs) Something happened to one of us for six consecutive months. Uh, So we'd go there. So she had to balance all of that. I think it was in high school. She even wrote a book, you know, in her spare time, (laughs) which to me, to balance all of that, Having trying to balance my life makes you appreciate, you know, what, what they had to do. So it was quite, I mean, the whole work ethic was very important. And of course, you know, you were seeing them work as hard as they did. Fascinating. I know uh, your mom's book was a, is a very rich set of stories around, you know, the Japanese culture back then in Hawaii, which was a very in, in, interesting time for the U.S. and Hawaii in general. Yes. And she was a kind of a pioneer in terms of documenting the Japanese-American culture here in Hawaii. Having grown up, both my mom and dad grew up in a place in town called Aala Park, which was sort of the community for the Japanese who first settled here uh, and moved off of the plantation. Um, so she, she, she lived through that. So a lot of her stories and a lot of stories that she collected were about that uh, particular neighborhood. You mentioned something around sixth grade that you... Took a left turn. So, yeah, so. <laughs> can you elaborate a little bit on that and what that really meant and how that sort of, again, taught you different things about life? I uh, 
decided, maybe not consciously, but uh, that school was not important for me probably in the second half of sixth grade until I graduated from high school. So I gave a speech recently, and the title of my speech was 2.017, which was my cumulative grade point average uh, graduating from high school. So I, 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 didn't, I didn't pay much attention to school. I just wanted to make sure that I had a C average, and I was quite successful in hitting that C average. <laughs> it's not as easy as people would lead you to believe to get a C average because you have to balance certain things <laughs> to get a C average. I had a C average. Uh, I tell people the two things that have served me uh, well in high school, primary middle school and high school, was that I learned, one, how to get out of trouble. You know, when you're in trouble, you got to figure out a way and think of all the alternatives, how you get out of trouble. I never was to a point where I was, like, uh, charged with any crime or anything, but uh, we, we had some interesting times. So the first thing was to learn how to get out of trouble. The second thing, which... I really learned and really helped me was learning how to uh, bounce back from failure, which I think till today still stays with me in terms of learning how to pick yourself up and keep on keep on moving forward. I tell many of the young people that I used to work with that one of the difficulties that they face, because you know, I'm lucky I get to deal with some of the brightest and most successful young people I know. But I tell them that one of the challenges that you as a young person and as you grow older are going to have is that you've never failed. So you've created this belief about yourself and the people around you have this belief that you're always never going to fail. Right. And because of that, uh, one, if you fail, you may be faced, may not, or may be faced with a difficult situation about how you pick yourself up. Secondly, if you never failed and you believe that you're not going to fail, you may become less or more risk adverse as you grow older because you see yourself in a certain light and you're not going to put yourself in a position where you potentially might fail. And that will serve you well because you won't fail. Nonetheless, you may not take advantage of an opportunity that may be presented to you because if you take that opportunity, there's a chance that you might fail. Um, so you, you start limiting your world in that way. So learning how to fail, pushing yourself through that failure has made me not more more of a risk taker, but more willing to take risks where others might not. It's an incredible learning that early in 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 your life that you picked up on. Uh, you know, talking talking about your grade point average at school and and uh, you know, realizing especially coming from a culture we we know uh, esteems education very highly and having a mother as an elementary school teacher yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how how did that go go not but so good yeah. <laughs> the other thing that uh, i always tell people is that not only did was my mom an elementary school teacher but she had three really close friends that had three daughters who were my age and all of them we all graduated in the same year and all all the other three or valedictorians of their class. Uh, so I was not real popular because I, I was not clearly not the valedictorian and all my mom's friends had daughters that were valedictorians. So it, it, was, it, was, it was a rough time for her and for me, probably more for her than for me. But hearing you talk, it looks like those lessons that you learned during that period were invaluable in terms of how it shaped everything you do in life even to today. You know, people always ask the question, would you change stuff in your life? And I wouldn't have changed that part of my life. Plus, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, taking us back to uh, past the uh, 
the time of school, uh -huh. you know, and of course, uh, as we know today, Hawaii is very, uh, today very tourist-driven uh -huh. and, and overbuilt like most tourist places. But you grew up in the old Hawaii where everything was... You know, a lot of people, very smaller community. Alamana Shopping Center was not like what it is today. You'd go to Alamana Shopping Center and see a lot of your friends. Now you go and you don't know anybody. Right, right. Obviously, you uh, you chose a legal career, but how did you come about that? You know, around high school, you had to make some decisions. And Well, coming out of high school, I was going to be an auto mechanic. And I had, uh, she's not a real uncle. I call him a Calabash or kind of uncle that I always grew up with. So I call him uncle. And he spent a lot of time with me, talking to me about the necessity to go to college. So he kept on talking to me, talking to me, talking to me, talking to me. And I ended up following his advice and went to college. And I eventually got a degree in education, a bachelor's degree in education, teaching social studies. And throughout those years, he continued to talk to me. And he then convinced me that I didn't want to be a teacher, that I should go to law school. So he continued to talk to me, talk to me, and I finally said, okay, apply to law school. Didn't do research or anything about law school. Picked schools based upon where I wanted to live, where I thought it would be nice to live. I knew nothing about law school. Luckily, uh, again, God's looked favorably upon me <laughs> and got me into Hastings Law School in San Francisco. Met some really, really, really good friends. Decided to become a lawyer, primarily because of my uncle. So, uh, you know, throughout my life, I've been really fortunate to have a lot of good mentors so he is probably my first mentor so I, I i learned from him the reason why i was able to do better in college and better in law school was that i realized that based on my personality that i needed structure in my life i'm very much in terms of scheduling very much regimented but with structure that forces me to focus and to concentrate. So even in college, I started being more regimented in terms of being able to study. When I went to law school, the first day of law school, I was like, oh, this, this is, I don't know if this is for me because there are all these people in the front row that are raising their hand and trying to answer questions to the professor. And I was sitting in the back row saying, don't call on me, don't call on me. <laughs> so I decided that, uh, and this when Rocky came out too, the movie, and I decided that, look, to, to keep up with those people in the front row, I'm going to have to outwork them. <laughs> and that's where structure came in. So every I'd have a schedule every week, and I maintained that schedule from my first year in law school to the, to the day I graduated because I was concerned about not being able to compete and be able to and not even do well to pass, basically. But that schedule and that having that regimented type of structure uh, help me get through what I needed to get through. That's very interesting learnings around your time of school. And then you uh, pivoted from education to law and created structure for yourself. I mean, it's... Uh... You know, it's interesting because I ended up being a trial lawyer for 30 years, right? Civil trial lawyer. What, what, what I tell people doing civil trial law or doing trials is that I am basically an educator. I am educating the jury about my client's position and also trying to convince them about the reason why my client's position is correct. So it's like education, you're using different tools, a different method, a different process. But nonetheless, you're trying to educate the jury about the validity of your case, right? So 
in a different way, I was still kind of teaching in my mind. The other thing that you find out is that, you know, as you get older, you start supervising other lawyers, et cetera, and you realize that you're teaching them, right? So it's still it's kind of a similar kind of job. In it. So even though you didn't plan your, your uh, academic career, actually the education piece of it significantly provided a foundation for your uh, uh, law school and also for, uh, yeah, trial law. It's amazing to hear that I wouldn't have you know I don't want to sound smarter than what I what I really am because it's not by plan right exactly uh, sometimes I wonder how come I'm so fortunate to have been in where I was right now I think you mentioned one key insight which is very important for any of us as leaders is, is mentors and and early on your uncle played that role for you in a very, very important way, even though he may not have ever heard the word mentor, you know, right? Yeah, that's continued to this day where I've been very fortunate about having different mentors in different parts of my life. And, you know, I I don't know when the role of mentor, I mean, how you define mentor, because at some times I think you're a mentor, but, you know, we have a different, you're not older than I, I mean, but, but still you provide me with valuable insight and advice. That's why I always search people out to ask them questions about life. So for me, I've had mentors and people, People, I think people make mistakes and try to get mentors in the same field as them. Right. I've had doctors that have been mentors, businessmen, not really. I've had bosses, of course, that are lawyers, but I've not had mentors outside of that are in the legal profession because you just learn from people's life experience. And yeah, okay, their life is a little bit different, a doctor versus a lawyer, but nonetheless, their life experience is very valuable. And that's the key. You mentioned one key word is learning. And one thing I look at in every conversation is what can I learn from somebody else? And that early on intrigued me about you in our friendship is that you wanted to learn about life lessons around me and vice versa. Yeah. You know, I felt the same way as I, I wanted, I was very intrigued by your your life, your career and what you learned and all of that. And we talked about a few things in life. And I think that's very important for all of us. We sometimes want to hear ourselves too much, but it's much nicer to hear somebody else. Well, and I, I learned from learning about your life and your life experience, right? It doesn't have to be a specific topic. And then it all goes back to me, then, then how do I understand you better? Right, because if I understand your your life story, then I can better understand you and relate to you and communicate with you. When did you first start thinking uh, you were thrust into leadership? You know, because we'll come back obviously to you lead a large organization here in Hawaii at Hawaii Telecom. But before we get there, I mean, when did this first thought come to you that hey, you know, I'm I'm leading a team of people or I'm in a leadership position as a trial lawyer or I'm doing something where people are dependent on me? I'm not sure how that happened because I don't talk about it much, but I was actually the student body president. There you go. So that started it. But the reason why I was student body president is that I had a mentor that was one year older than me and he told me that I should run for student body president. I said, what? <laughs> didn't make sense to me. But anyway, that was my first kind of formal leadership. And then I got involved in stu- his same guy, the same University of Hawaii. He told me to get involved in the student government. So I ended up getting involved in student government. So I don't know. It's been a kind of a natural evolution. I've ever considered myself a leader, although, you know, in reflecting, uh, 
in my life, and, and my wife will tell you, it's because I'm bossy. But I've always <laughs> ended up, even in our social group, or if we will play a sport. For example, in law school, we had intramurals, and it was actually quite competitive in terms of playing football or playing basketball. It was very competitive and very bruising. <laughs> but I would always end up being the captain. And maybe it was self-appointed. <laughs> but nonetheless, I would, I'd, I'd be the captain. And for whatever reason, people would defer to me. And, I, I, and it's not something that I, I tried to make them defer to me. But and like my wife says, probably because I was just bossy. <laughs> so so I have had these leadership positions, always been fairly outspoken, try to be um, transparent and, and really stating what. And I think that has helped me become a leader over the years. And then I went to become a lawyer. And even with my partnership and stuff like that, I was very, very outspoken. Too much so sometimes, but I survived. <laughs> and of course, you know, you were a very successful trial lawyer over the 30-year career you had there. Uh, but one thing uh, I know uh, intrigued me very much on how you practiced that area of law. And I know you had a couple of great insights. Into yeah, this. Great insight. I, I made my own kind of, I, I tried, I learned how to try cases by watching other lawyers talking to other lawyers and stuff. But the one thing that you and I talk about um, that I sort of created on my own, and I'm not sure how it happened, was that for every trial that I actually did, and I did a fair number of trials, I would choose a theme song. <laughs> and and the, the theory behind that was that I thought that every in every trial, there was a rhythm that I needed to impart upon everyone in the courtroom. And that rhythm would, would lead to a successful conclusion for my my side. So I would choose a song based upon what I thought the rhythm should be for the trial. Wait and wait and wait and listen to a lot of music. And the younger people won't remember this, but there was a store called Borders where they used to go and yes. listen to music. I'd go around the store listen to all, these different, you know, all these different musics that you could sample, music pieces that you could sample. And I'd pick a song. Then I'd, I'd sing the song to myself. When I'm walking to court, I sing the song to myself. Then the break, I sing the song to myself to gain that rhythm. And then I try to impose that rhythm first on myself and then upon uh, others in the courtroom, be it the judge or the jury. And, and you found, found great success in using a yeah. technique like that. Yeah, and, and you know, one, one example I would give you is that I was involved in a very controversial case and I had to cross-examine a woman. And I thought that if I had too sh too fast a rhythm, it would look like I was overbearing and bullying her. So I picked a song that was very slow and methodical because that's how I would have to do the cross-examination. And on the first day, I totally lost my rhythm. So the first day that I cross-examined her, I lost it. I, I was so angry at myself because I knew what I had to do and I didn't do it. So all night I sang the song to myself right. and I came back the next day and was able to maintain that rhythm and be very methodical without being a bully. And I was able to successfully cross-examine her. But just having that rhythm, and, I, you know, uh, it seems natural to me because if you hear people talk about sports teams, sports teams, when they're playing really well, have a rhythm, and people try to do what they can to disrupt the rhythm. They call timeouts or, you know, somebody has a fake injury or whatever just to disrupt the rhythm. 
So it just makes it makes sense to me why if you do this, and I, I know there are books that talk about flow, and I think that that's part of it, the flow of the, the rhythm. Um, but I did that, and then I, in terms of trials, I made up my own way. I believe I made up my own way. I always think I have an original idea, then I found out that I probably... This oh. is quite original, I must say. For every trial I did, I would have handwritten every question I was going to ask in the trial before the trial started. I cannot use a computer to write, so I would use the three-hole wide rule paper that all of you have used in elementary school, probably, and handwrite my, my questions. But I I would do my questions in a different way. I wanted to, my series of questions, each series of questions should be making an argument without mm-hmm. being argumentative. Yeah. And the, the closest I can tell you about that is that I talked to a musician once who wrote songs. So we agreed that you start with a uh, a question and the, the last lyric or the last question is a point that you want to make. So what I would have to do is take you as a listener, I ask a question and, and then boom, the last is the point that I want to make. And I'd have all of these questions all set up so that I'd be making arguments by asking questions without being argumentative. So I don't know. I don't know how I learned that, <laughs> but it worked for me. I had a lot of fun doing trials. Fascinating technique, uh, John. And uh, obviously, have you, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about your your current role and how you sort of morphed out of out of law school, I mean, out of your legal career. But give us a little bit of that journey, and then we'll come back a little bit to using this tech, unique technique that you've talked about in your the own journey. Leadership. The journey to become Moving a business. From, yes. I was a trial lawyer, for, you know, and I, I, I purposely call myself a trial lawyer and not a litigator because my strength is actually doing trials, and I did a lot of trials. So I was happy doing trials. I think I was getting bored a little bit about doing trials. Every trial is different, and I understand that. But you have a general template that you apply, right. and you have to adjust it and turn it and mo- modify it for every trial. I get that. But after a certain point of time, it was not as exciting as it used to be. And then I got a call from the then chairman of the board of Hawaiian Telecom, Walter Dodds, asking me to consider coming over as senior vice president and general counsel. And what he told me was that he had hired uh, a great leader, Eric Yeaman, to lead the company. And they were looking for general counsel. So he was asking if I was interested. At the point of my career that I was, I said, oh, let's talk about it. And I think I, I sensed that he was somewhat surprised that he, he was going through a checklist, you know, so he called John, so he called John, and he was kind of surprised. So we talked about it, and I thought that this was a new challenge that I wanted to undertake. But the challenge was not about the law. So they right. asked me to come and be a general counsel and do the regular general counsel thing, you know, supervise a few lawyers, regulatory, government affairs. But they also offered me the chance to manage um, a really different group. So I ended up managing our warehouse, our fleet, our buildings, security, communications. Um, And that's what intrigued me rather than the law side. I wanted to know whether I could be a leader in a totally different arena than law. You know, if I just had the general counsel duties, I'm pretty certain that I could work and manage lawyers and government affairs kind of people, but that was kind of just going from one to the next, right? So this opportunity to work with a whole different bunch of people in a different in different fields was what really attracted me to the job and so I went through I became 
senior vice president, and then I slowly picked up additional duties as I went through, and I, I enjoyed uh, working with these different people. You know, you're a very natural leader, and I can tell you that was about the time, uh, about five six years ago, when we had a lot of conversations, and and your intrigue and desire to learn mm-hmm. was very evident, at least uh, to somebody like me, who was observing what you were trying to do and. And exhibiting your natural leadership style, you 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 are a very natural leader. Well, I'm really fortunate because I, I I don't well I read a lot about leaders, right? I read about coaches and leaders and stuff like that. But for whatever reason, and that that's one of the big questions in my life, right? Am I doing all this? Why am I so lucky? Why is this happening? Is there is there a bigger plan for me to somehow give back more? He can never answer that question. But you just if you reflect like. Why, why is this happening, you know, to me, in a good way? So I, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> Still searching. Yes. Well, you've, um, you've had, a, you know, of course, uh, being, a, being in the leadership position you currently are as the president of uh, Hawaiian Telecom here, and, uh, you have the opportunity to also lead young leaders. And what is some of the advice you would give to the next generation of leaders? I know we talked a little earlier in the in the podcast about some of the advice. I mean, any thoughts that come straight up to you to say, here's the do's and don'ts? I I try not to do do's and don'ts, but it it kind of goes back to some of the other stuff I talked about, about taking risks, working hard, uh, just really basic things. But And I know this is uh, something else that we've talked about. One of the things I like best about this job is watching people grow. So the young leaders around me, I, I get so much more from watching them grow and develop as leaders in their own right. And there's not nothing specific that I tell them, but it's just kind of asking them questions. I, I, I've become better at that. I used to be a very directive type of leader. When you're the head of a trial section, uh, it's more like a, you know, a unit in the military or something like that where you have a really hierarchical kind of structure. Coming here, I realized that I'd have to be more collaborative. But anyway, but just so the way I, I think I lead by example more than talking people through leadership about being open and being transparent, doing the best you can. And, and the leaders that are direct reports to me, I, I, what I stress to them is that you are leaders of the whole company. You're not leaders of your business organization. So I need you to act like a leader of the whole company. Um, so it's just small things like that that I try to impart on them, tell them to be as transparent as as they can, and let's have a good discussion about it, and then let's buy into the decision, let's move on. Well, I mean, that's really important. Too. And, of course, there's so many incredible things you've learned all the way in your leadership. And I mean, do you, do you have a couple of things that come to your mind that you would see an upcoming leader to say, look, these are some things... I learned not to do as a leader, I mean, that I would impart to you. Probably the main thing is treating people with respect. I think the basis for a leader is trust and respect, right? So I always tell them that trust and respect is a two-way street. You cannot expect to gain somebody's respect if you don't respect them. You can't believe that you can get someone's trust on you unless you trust them. So you're going to have to exhibit and truly believe that you respect. I, I, I try, part of what I think has helped me in life is I try to respect everybody I mean. Try to trust as many people as I can. And that begets trust and respect. And that's how you become a leader. That's kind of the basic 
those two words are probably the basic things that I use to become a leader, trust and respect. You know, of course, part of leadership is defined by successful execution. And, you know, it means different things to different leaders. And how do you define that for good leaders, you know, because we're all measured by some things. Yeah. We've been really lucky here. Uh, I don't know, it's luck. These, these guys work really hard. And we've been able to kind of turn the ship 180 degrees in a very short time. But 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 for me, a lot of what I measure is effort. You know, so if you have effort and you're trying your best and you you know you try to do what is right, that's how I measure that kind of individual success. If you're half stepping in instead of going all out, I have a hard time. But but you know we have goals, and if you know luckily we've hit those goals. But if you're trying the best you can, and everybody has different levels, I get that. It's hard for me to judge people other than whether or not I believe that they're trying the best they can. Because some people hit a maximum or hit a plateau sure. and you can't expect anything else. But if they're doing the best they can, that's that's their best. You can't ask for anything else. We're all at varying levels. Yeah, varying levels, right? So as long as I kind of get that you're working at your best. And the other thing, you know, we're really lucky because... Um, one of the things I've tried to do as a leader is to try to break down silos. And the team that I have now is doing really well at breaking down the silos and putting things on the table and not, again, not trying to represent their business business organization, but trying to do what is right for everybody. Well, I mean, you, you've clearly, I mean, uh, been at the helm of this ship here and uh, been very successful at it. You know, we could go on and on about the leadership element of it, and very soon we'll come to the end of this show. But there is a few more questions I have for you. One of them is around uh, why giving back to you is very important, because even as a community leader, you do that a lot. And, uh, you know, is that something that as we get all get older, we reflect on? I mean, are there things that you're thinking about when you say giving back is yeah. something I've been... Well, I've been so fortunate in my life, right? I've been fortunate in my life that, and I know there are people that are less fortunate. So part of, I think is ingrained in me and maybe by my parents is that you got to give back to the community. And I think Hawaii is a very special place in the sense that that is the culture, giving back and trying to help the next person, which is, may not be unique, but it's very heightened in Hawaii. So I grew up in that culture to give back and to be part of the community. So that, to me, is a responsibility that I have to give back to the community. And it also goes to that other saying that, you know, to, to whom much is given, much is expected, right. right? So that kind of puts together the two that I grew up in a community that is always giving back. You know, much of the business community here, much of the, 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 the government, they all give back. Everybody gives back in their own way. But every And that's one thing that sometimes I get in differ people about is that people got to give back in the way they feel most comfortable. I got in a big argument when I was a lawyer because they wanted us to do pro bono work. And I, I did pro bono work, right? But their definition of pro bono work was you had to give back in a legal way. And my argument was that if someone feels more comfortable by going out and helping big brothers and big sisters by being a big brother to someone... That's giving back. So your your definition of pro bono is too narrow for me. If the idea is to give back to your community, I get that we have specialized skills. But if you are feel most comfortable in giving back by being an excellent big brother, big sister, who are you to say that that's not giving back to the community? 
but it's, it's all about giving back and you give back in the way that you feel the most comfortable i i think it was just the way that i was raised and the culture of hawaii that that's helped me with that sort of attitude when you meet somebody for the first time what do you want to leave them with to instill them with about you about john komeji it's sort of changing when i was a trawler i didn't want you to know anything about me i wanted to know everything about you because i thought that there may be strategic advantages about uh, i went through a, a really big case where i must have said less than 10 words to opposing counsel over a 3 year period i had other attorneys working on the case so they would say but my whole thing was to observe and watch you so i wanted you to be facing a ghost basically you don't know who i am <laughs> right and then i sneak up on you <laughs> in this job now in from a from a job standpoint i have to be more outward with myself so i have to do a little bit more in terms of being the face of the company etc now on a personal basis it's the same thing trust and respect right i respect you it may be a good thing or a bad thing but um people sometimes are shocked at how i interact with really famous people or rich people cuz i just treat them like everybody else and so to the weird you know people think that that's bad but i find a lot of times many of these people not all of them appreciate that you're treating them like everybody else cuz everybody else treats them as special they would just want to be like one you know like person to person so i just try to treat them with respect trust and just like a regular person and just have a talk about whatever and sometimes i start uh, making fun of them and people are like shocked but if you do it in the right way they sure. they can accept it i don't know if i want to leave him with anything except that you know, he was a kind of a likable guy that uh maybe he's smart maybe not but he's sometimes funny right what uh, all of us as leaders spend a lot of time also gleaning wisdom from everything around us including reading books mm-hmm. any books that you're currently reading that you would uh want well, to share with our audience i uh, like i said i i uh, since taking this position i've kind of reread some of the books that i like one of the people i really respected and i i never met him of course is uh, john wooden who coached basketball and just the way he was able to deal with all these disparate personalities and all that stuff so i just reread one of his books to kind of get, you know pick up some words of wisdom and um how how you, how you treat people and yet that pyramid of success and stuff i don't really understand all of it but i i read books about leadership i read a uh, one of my favorite management books it's is more tactical it's a book called the advantage by patrick vincioni so i read that recently so my my readings now are focused primarily upon leadership and how to be a better leader and i mean maybe rereading some of the books i read some time ago very interesting actually those are very good books yeah. to for our audience to read on and John it's uh, been such a pleasure to uh, to have you on the show but I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't want to close the show without asking one last question and um I think you're uh, you're, you're an incredible person I've had the privilege of knowing you now for a few years and and uh I hope many years to come would have the similar privilege of learning from you and and from your life lessons but for our audience one last question would be uh what do you want people to remember john komeji but i think i am a very loyal friend i try to be a friend and i don't care who you are what your station in life is rich poor 
bad, sometimes good. Uh, if I'm your friend, uh, I want I want you to remember that I was always a good friend, and I want you I want you to be my friend. Well, you you've definitely proved that consistency, which these days is very hard to to realize in a lot of people that we interact with in life that flippantly can call each other as friends. But it's very, very uh, powerful statement to hear you say that, that you really want to be just remembered as a consistent, loyal friend. It's interesting because, you know, in high school, you, you have to pick a little, I had to pick a little quote. So I picked the Beatles quote, which was, so under my graduation picture, it says, I got by with a little help from my friends, which is true, which yeah. still today, I will say, I got by with a little help from my friends well is there any other things you would want to share with our audience john it's been such a pleasure well one of the questions that you asked me which i thought was interesting and you'll laugh at this is my favorite quote yes my favorite quote of all time is yeah. never mistake luck for skill <laughs> i i really believe that that's really important in my life that never john never mistake you've been really lucky so don't think you're skillful <laughs> well it's a, it's it's a very good good quote actually because you know charting your own career you've seen how you've moved uh, very differently from one vertical to another yeah. the legal vertical to a business yeah. some things happen it's just luck it's not because you're that good <laughs> so don't get carried away with yourself well john thank you so much for joining me on the show and i really appreciate it thank sharing you your life lessons and same thing thank you for being my friend So dear, John Komeji's story of getting hit on the head with a hammer by another kindergarten student is maybe my favorite early learning story so far on Cracking the Code. So many of your guests have shared how what they learned as a child shaped their success, but a hammer to the head? And his parents used that to teach John how not to be pushed around, and it had a big impact on his life later. Komeji admits he was not the best student. He says a C student. But remarkably, like the hammer, low grades taught him two important lessons. How to get out of trouble, something we all need to master at some point, and how to bounce back from failure, how to pick yourself up and move ahead. And John Komeji did that and certainly learned how early to crack the code. <laughs> 